0: So thanks again for coming. Um, if you've been with us, you know we're, we're doing a series through Proverbs. And we're, we're talking about this idea from the Bible called wisdom. And what we're basically trying to say is that 99%, 90% of life is not doesn't fall into the realm of black and white, where it's really clear morally what you should do. A lot of life, so much of life, falls into this, this gray uh, category where you don't know, if we're being honest, I don't know. We don't know how we should do, what we should do, when we should do. A lot of what we should. So we've said dating is kind of falls in that category. of The Bible, you don't open the Bible and say, "Here's who you should date. Here's who you should marry." Picking a major isn't doesn't fall into that category. of The Bible, you're never going to hear the voice of Jesus saying, "Go be a teacher or go be an engineer or go be, you know, a, a, a chemist." There's a lot of life. So much of life, you if you're being if you're humble, if you're letting kind of life and letting the Lord kind of have His way with you in college. Part of what you're learning is you don't have enough wisdom. If you're in your most sober moments, you don't have the wisdom you need to live the kind of life that you need to live, that you and I need to live. And so we're talking about this idea of wisdom. And tonight, last week we looked about wisdom and beauty. Tonight we're looking at wisdom and self-control. And there are really just two proverbs I want to focus on that speak to us just about the idea of self-control. And uh, I'm going to read them for us. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to dive in. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Somebody's been working out. It's, it's not me. I, I have not been working out. Um, all right, let me read them. Proverbs first, 25, uh, the first one. Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-eight. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. And then Proverbs 26, 12 through 16. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's mo- more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says there's a lion in the road, there's a lion in the streets. As a door turns in its hinges, so does a sluggard in his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Let me pray for us, and I want to kind of dive in uh, tonight. Let's pray first. Lord, we, do, we thank you for uh, Proverbs. We thank you that you tell us that we can come to you and ask for wisdom. And, Lord, I pray tonight that you would give us, um, make our hearts fertile soil, make our hearts... Uh, uh, broken tilled up soil ready to receive the word you have from us or for us the word um that we're looking at even tonight about self-control lord we if we're being honest we we are that proud man we are that fool uh, who thinks we know what is right in our own eyes and lord i pray tonight that you would come and humble us Uh, but don't just humble us would you also lift us up and encourage us to we pray these things in christ's name i So the moment where I almost never went back to counseling was I was a sophomore at USC, really depressed, and my mom essentially just, I don't know how she's worked it. I guess I was just so desperate that I decided I'm going to go to counseling for the first time. And really what had happened was the girlfriend of a couple of years had broken up with me. It was not one of those mutual breakups where you're like, oh, this is good for both of us. It was like one of those I'm going to hunt you down and we are going to date kind of breakups, and I was the one that was desperate. And so after that failed, repeatedly failed, uh, and my last-ditch efforts failed, I finally said, okay, I need help. I I was really, really depressed. So I went to this counselor, and I remember he wasn't the best counselor in the world because I remember this vividly. The only time where I really feel like if I had had a weapon on me, things could have gone poorly, was we were talking about my sleep habits. I was just sleeping really entire days through and I remember him saying, I, just, I said something like, it's really hard to get up in the morning. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, no, it's not. You just put both feet on the ground and stand up. And I wanted him to be like, I want to murder you right now. Because he made something that was this real struggle in my life for various reasons seem so simple. And in some ways it was so simple. And yet it wasn't easy. And I think when you come to think about self control we're going to talk kind of two sides because some of you are here you relate you're like I'm that I'm that person I struggle with self control in obvious ways others of you think you are or you have tons of self control but you're just as broke and we're going to talk about you later but first think of, think about this idea that self control we're never going to be fruitful we're never going to be successful we're never even in like worldly terms if we don't have self discipline self control we kind of immediately get why it is so important and yet if we're being honest for a lot of us we, we really struggle with it. I'll never forget listening, feeling understood, listening to this band called Pedro the Lion back in the day, this, this writer, this, this songwriter, uh, David Bazan, who I loved because he was just honest. And he had this song written about this, and this is what he said that I really resonated with. He said, You're up with the sunrise, and he's looking at this other self controlled person. He says, You're up with the sunrise and down when the work's been done with excellence, industry, diligence, naturally. I would like to be you just for a few habit forming years. But laziness cuts me like fine cutlery. I need a miracle, someone to help me, myself. Sweet Jesus, I need you. Forgive me the sin, not hookers or heroin, gambling or gin. It sounds so ridiculous, but I just can't lick this. And what he's talking about is the struggle for self-control. And so what I want to do tonight, kind of simply looking and thinking about these two images that Proverbs gives us, is really ask three questions. It's another three-pointer. It's kind of my go-to. Here we go. Why we need self-control is the first one. Second. Where we struggle with self-control, and then lastly, how do we get self-control? So first, why we need it? Why is important? I've already said a little bit. Second, where we struggle with it, and then lastly, how do we get it? This self-control that we need. So first, I'm going to think with me for a second about where, uh, why we need self-control, and this is where proverbs. We haven't introduced it so far. Like if you're going to understand proverbs, you've got to understand this re- this reoccurring character called the fool. And the fool is a fool in all kinds of ways in Proverbs. He says things he shouldn't say. He kind of shows up in places unwanted that he shouldn't go. He listens to certain voices he shouldn't listen to. And in this case, the fool uh, is struggles with uh, self-control and is, and is essentially lazy. He struggles with working hard. Uh, he, he lacks self-control and is prone to self-indulgence and laziness. And this is where those two images are really important. I mean, you saw them. We read them. But just think with me about them for a second. One is a city... With no walls. So, if you're a Walking Dead fan, this is what I immediately thought about is remember this season, part of, I mean, every season it's the same story. It's like, can we get to this self sustained place with secure walls to keep out the walkers, right? And it seemed like this season, no spoilers, but if you watch the season, I mean, the tension of every season is we find that they find this place that seems to be working really well. And even if they can keep things from, you know, from without, inevitably something from within brings the walls down and chaos ensues again. They've got to find a new place. And Proverbs says that's exactly what a life lived with no self-control is like. You're absolutely vulnerable to temptations and disasters from without and from within. Or if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you know, think about the great, you know, the, the great battle in the second book or second movie where the wall seems so secure and yet when it comes down disaster ensues. And Proverbs says living a life without self-control is like that. And then the second image it gives is pretty interesting. It's of a man... Who comes up with every excuse he possibly can to not go to work? There's a lion in the streets. It seems to our ears ridiculous. And even in their ears, it would have been ridiculous. This wasn't like a common occurrence in Jerusalem where there weren't really lions. So you can tell this guy's sort of making up reasons, whether it's anxiety or whether it's sheer laziness, to not get out of bed, to not go to work. He's eaten up, swallowed up with his own self indulgence. You know, he, he gets so wrapped up in his self-indulgence he can't even make himself dinner before he lays back down in bed. And there's this image that he doesn't have the self-control that one needs to get out into the world, to, to you know, to to get out there to pursue, you know, his gifts and his dreams in ways that are good for him, not just him, his family, but for the world. And those are the images that, that Proverbs... And so if we could wrap it in the two, we say one thing, that... You'll never be what you could be without self-control. You will never be what, what God made you to be, what he redeemed you to be, what he's calling you to be without self-control. And there's a real sense when we kind of get that, that, we, that we need it, that we're sort of desperate for it. How do we define self-control? We can kind of go two ways. Self-control, on the one hand, is the ability to rule your own mind, spirit, and body. To do what Kierkegaard said when he said purity of heart is to will one thing. So that's what we could call self-control. Self-control is that purity of heart that enables you to will one thing, which is to know, love, serve the living God. We could also say self-control is, and that's kind of the positive aspect, but there's a negative aspect. Self-control on the negative aspect is the ability to say no to what you need to say no to and to say yes what you need to say yes to. Uh, it's the ability, in other words, to say no to ungodliness and yes to Jesus. It's the ability to say no to temptation and yes to virtue. It's the ability to say no to the million things we could do. This is what's hard about college. And yet say yes to that next right thing, that singular next right thing that we should do, that you and I should do. But if we're being honest, this is where, if we get a picture of what, self, why we need self-control. This is what, I, the image I always think about is this illustration that I read about years ago, the true story, there's this guy, Thomas Costain writes about it in his book, The Three Edwards. There's this uh, essentially a Duke, his name was the III, He was this about 10th century in what was now is now essentially Belgium. And he was a large man, he loved to eat. And he had a younger brother, Edward, who decided they got sideways, and Edward made kind of a coup to take the throne. And he took the throne and he imprisoned his brother, Reynold III. Now, Reynold again, was a really, really large man. So the way that Edward imprisoned him was pretty interesting. He basically put him into this room with very narrow doors. And he said, Reynold, you are free to go whenever you want. But what he did every day was he had his servants bring him feast upon feast upon feast, a feast at breakfast, a feast at lunch, feast at dinner, and Reynold could not, he did not for 10 years say no to his appetite and literally never was able to leave the room until his brother died, he was free, and then he died a year later from ill health, basically. And it like, sort of sounds like, a, like a, that's like an extreme, but is it extreme? Because is it your problem and my problem that we have these appetites, these things that we know we shouldn't do, that we can't seem to not do? Like Isn't your struggle and my struggle that we, we have these things that we know we should do that we can't seem to bring ourselves to do? For a lot of us, for being honest, that's exactly where we are. And that's where second, I want to think for just a minute about where we struggle with self-control. And the first one is we immediately, some of us relate to Raynald, where our problem seems to be we, can't, we have no control over ourselves. That could be an emotional thing. That could be a physical thing. That could be you know, a, a really a, a mental thought process that we, we've lost control or we feel out of control. And this is, I want to kind of do, there are three ways, this is like a mini-sermon within a sermon, there are three ways that I think we, where we struggle. One is the obvious way, the second is the less obvious way, and the third is like the way less obvious way. So first is the obvious way, is where it's said it's the Raynaud way. It's we lack motivation, uh, this is what we typically, we typically would just call this being lazy. Uh, we only ever do what we feel like doing, and we never really bring ourselves to do what we don't feel like doing. Uh, so we can eat too much, drink too much, Netflix too much, uh, FIFA too much, uh, sleep too much, all kinds of too muches. Nothing motivates us. We've lost all motivation. And this was kind of what I described why I went to, going into counseling, was this is where I got at sophomore year of college. I just had no motivation we're going to get to why in a second. But second, the less obvious way is, okay, we might have motivation. We might kind of know and even be trying to do what we know we should do, but we lack power. We're, we're not able to accomplish what it is that we know we should be doing. So the problem isn't that we don't know what we should do, or even that we don't want to do it, but the problem instead is that we try, and we fail, and we try, and we fail, and we try, and we fail. And typically, typically sadly, our culture would say, oh, you're just weak. What's wrong with you? Don't you just have well, Where's your willpower? Where's your resolve? Where is your Jennifer Lawrence to do itness? Just get it done. Where is your oomph? Mm, that felt awkward. But where is your. <laughs> you fill in the word. And this is where, if you're being honest, it, we, a lot of us do lack, we could also just for a moment call it willpower. The willpower to make the changes that we know we need to make. Uh, and this can, for a lot of us, get into the realm of addiction and kind of the, the enigma and the mystery that addiction is. And, and some of us have family members that we've seen kind of been eaten up by addiction and, and we don't understand, but it seems like we've lost all power. That's a less obvious way. But now, let me just, because some of you are here, and I ugh, came here already after night, this is not for me. I'm the type A person. Don't you know my GPA? Can't you see how I dress? Don't you see what I drive? Don't you understand I'm taking 22 hours this semester plus working a job at Panera? This is like not your problem and yet it is your problem because this is the less, less obvious way and the less, less obvious way is we have the wrong motivation. You've got the wrong motivation. So you're working out all the time, but it's just because you want to be found attractive by the opposite sex. And you don't miss a workout and you don't miss your eating plan and you eat sweet potatoes every day and you eat Fish every day, and you have incredible self-control, but it's only because you want to be found attractive, or you are driven. You don't miss class. You like maybe graduated high school as the perfect attendance person. We all kind of hate you, but we're glad you're here because Jesus doesn't hate you. <laughs> he hates that about you, but he doesn't hate you. And there's a sense in which you 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 are you know four point oh, and you. Study hard, and you check off all the boxes, and your dean's list, and it, it like, I'm not trying to take, that's a beautiful, wonderful thing, and yet your motivation is you can't bear the thought of your parents not being proud of you. You can't bear the thought of them, of you not living up to their expectations of you, and so you drive and drive and drive yourself, and you seem self-controlled, but what's your motivation? And there's a sense in which this is where it gets tricky. Uh, the, I went and saw, so my boss came to town last Thursday, and, like, my only hobby is movies, which is this, I, I'm getting okay with it, but he's like, what do you want to do? And I'm kind of like, I pretend like I'm going to think of something to do, and then I gently suggest going to a movie, and he's cool with it by this point. So we went and saw Creed. I don't know if you saw Creed. Uh, I'm like a... I'm a neutral Rocky fan. Like I grew up on Rocky, but I'm not like gung-ho Rocky. But I've always been intrigued by that line in Rocky where, remember Adrian, if you know the original Rocky? He's working out, working out, working out, driven, driven, driven. And then Adrian asks him, Rocky, why are you fighting? And he does that thing where he says, to prove that I'm not a bum. Well, Creed was fascinating because they, they were so good at like playing off of the original Rockies. Similar scene, here's Adonis, the son of Apollo Creed, if you know the Rocky story. And he he's kind of doesn't want people to know he's Apollo's son because he wants to make his own way. He grew up, Apollo was dead his whole life. He's, no one's really ever owned him as a true parent. He's a true, he's a fighter. And he's working his butt off to get to that level. And his girlfriend asks him, Adonis, Donnie, why are you fighting? And there's a twist, and he says, to prove that I'm not a mistake. And when he says that, there's one of those moments in the film you're like, it's kind of heartbreaking because there's a sense in which you hear him saying, I am so driven so that I can know I'm okay. So that I can know that I'm an okay person, that I'm good enough, that I'm enough. Um, This is why Anne Lamott likes to always challenge. She says, if you are what you do and you fail, what then? And there's this real sense... That we can be, this is the sneaky side of self-control, is that sometimes we get to these places in life, even for those of us who are more on the type B lazy side, where we're finding ourselves being self-controlled, but if we're being honest, the, the, the motivation is not Jesus. The motivation is not a life lived in love to God. It's something else. And so for me, this is where I came home. My, one of my other bosses came to town, this was years ago, we moved uh, from Statesboro to Columbia. I had gained a bunch of weight. And my boss had come to town, and he basically hung out with me and Alyssa. We were both in a pretty, on the heavier side of things. And he called me as he was leaving town. And he said, Sammy, I just want to really confront you. He was like, I want to know. I've been your friend a long time, and you have, I've never seen you exercise self-control. And the, the way he said it really just cut through to me because I really respect him, really want his approval. And it really cut me, and I thought, oh, I really wrestled with, what he said. Have I ever in my life exercised self-control? And so I decided I'm not going to, I was going to, this was probably in March, I was going to see him again in May, and I got on this kick where I was like, I really am going to start running every day, I really am going to start watching what I eat, and I really am going to slim up, and then when I see him, this was, I didn't say this, but this is what I think, When then when I see him, he will see that, oh, yes, I am self-controlled. And so I did, I worked my butt off. I probably lost 20 pounds in like, a two month period, I was feeling good. People were noticing, saying little comments, which always feels good. I get a summer conference. I'm like going out jog, you know, going to jog's at like six in the morning, which is just not my jam or style. If it's yours, it's fun. It's just not me. Anyway, so I see him, and I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for the man. You've been working out. You've been running. And I got nothing. Like absolutely nothing. And then that's why I ate double amount of Thomas' Donut Shacks on the way out. And I immediately came back to Columbia and just fell back into my habits. Why? What was my motivation? Just his approval. And it worked. And then it failed. And that's you. Like some of you have a motivation It's working. It's going to fail you. Like, even if it's your career, you might get, like, you could work 20-plus years, get that job, is going to fail you in one way or another. It just is. So that's the last question. Where do we get, how do we get this kind of a self-control that is true and lasts? And the easy way to end the sermon would be to say, uh, see, you're never going to love Jesus until you're self-controlled. You're never going to love Jesus until you get this self-control. So work harder, try harder. Let us pray. I mean, I guess that would be the easy way to end this. The harder way is to say this. What if it's the reverse? What if you're never going to become self-controlled until you see how absolutely captivated Jesus is with you? What if you're never going to become self-controlled until you see the approval you've been looking for you've actually already got? What what if you're never gonna get self-controlled until you see the only person worth your self-control is this person who has loved you to the absolute maximum of his life and his love? Um, there's this guy, Thomas Chalmers, he wrote this sermon back way back in the day called The Expulsive Power of New Affection. Here's what he said. I'm just gonna read it a little bit along the quote. He said there are two ways, worth it though, just bear with me. He says there are two ways in which a, per, a practical moralist, just a person striving to be good, may attempt to displace from his heart love of the world. Either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regards from an object that is not worthy of it, or by setting forth another object. Even God is more worthy of its attachment so that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. My purpose, and he's kind of setting up, my purpose is to show that from the constitution of our nature, the former method is altogether incompetent and effectual and that the latter method will alone suffice for the rescue and recovery of the heart from the wrong affection that domineers over it. What is he saying? Do you see what he's saying? Your heart has to have something that motivates it. And the way, to, the way to kind of get self-control is not to say don't let it motivated in that because you're going to find something new. The way to get your heart in a place of self-control is to let it fix upon Jesus, the only person worthy of your self-control and of your love and service. In other words, it's never enough just to say the folly of sin. You've got, our heart has to see the beauty of Jesus and be captivated by Jesus in this beautiful way. This is why John... One of the most fascinating passages to me in scripture is this verse in 1 John where John says this weird thing in in chapter 3 where he says, when we see Jesus, he's talking about Christians, he says, when we see him, we shall be like him. And it's this weird thought because it's like, is it this like X-Men mystique type thing where we we get to heaven and we're like, we shape shift into Jesus' likeness? No. Or is it this thing where we just like get around Jesus because we kind of know that when you're around Certain people, you really are shaped by them. Yeah, that's partly true, but I think he's saying something even deeper. I think he's saying what's going to happen for us in the new heavens and new earth is we're going to, because we're going to see Jesus, we're going to be so captivated by Jesus that we won't even want to sin anymore because everything we've always ever been looking for, we will find that we already have in him and our hearts are going to soar because we have this thing that we've been looking all kinds of places for right in front of us, and his name is Jesus. And there's this sense in which, you know, what captivates you. This is what John is saying, that the power of self-control and the power for self-control is found in being captivated by something. So just think about, I mean, there are all kinds of examples we could do. Just think two with me. Think Steph Curry. Steph Curry plays basketball like an angel who's good at basketball. Like, he really, like, it is unbelievable to watch. It's just a beautiful, like, I, like, it's a taste of heaven to watch him play basketball. And there's a sense that he's captivated by something. We could do the whole, he's a Christian, that's cool. Absolutely, that's really cool. But there's a sense in which, too, he wants to be, he wants to win championships. He wants to be MVP. He wants his name to be a legacy, to be in the Hall of Fame there. He's captivated. And we could even say in a broader sense, he's captivated by the beauty of the game. And it's, he's, like, with childlike wonder. It's beautiful to watch. Or think if you're not a sports person, you're a movie person. Think about Christian Bale. Christian Bale is amazing because has there ever been an actor in our time who will lose 100 pounds for a role and then gain 200 pounds for a role and then lose 300 pounds for another role? Like, he, he, what he does to his body is, like, physically seems impossible. And there's a sense of, like, what how does he have that self-control? To literally, if you've heard his point, he'll eat rice for a day, like a little handful of rice. And then he emaciates himself for a role. Why? What is he captivated by? He's captivated by the beauty of film. He's captivated by winning an Oscar. He's captivated by something bigger than himself. And the thing for us is we have that. We have have that thing. And yet our hearts so often fail to be captivated by the wonder of Jesus and the gospel but this is where the tables get turned because maybe we won't be captivated until we see that Jesus is captivated by us. There's a sense in which I I love the way that Hebrews 12 says it. It says that Jesus, if you've ever read Hebrews 12, says that he, for the joy set before him, went to the cross and despising its shame. So the natural question, if you're reading it for the first time, is what was Jesus' joy? Because think about the cross for a second. Is there ever been more self-control than Jesus showed on the cross? Just I mean, just I know we can talk about the cross, and you all kinds of things come to mind. Just think about it from a practical standpoint. The self-control it would take. To stay up there knowing you could, in a lot of different ways, he could have taken himself down. To know even before that, to, to walk the road to Jerusalem, know that, that was even going to happen. To stay up there and to hear, I've always loved and been intrigued by I remember the the One of the guards who says to him, you saved others, save yourself. And I love what D.A. Carson says. He said he saved others precisely by not saving himself. And there's a sense that Jesus shows this unbelievable self-control. This unbelievable self-control. For what? For the joy set before him. What was the joy? What was his joy? You. And me, we were the joy set before him. The thing that captivated, so captivated him that he could show the self-control it took to give his life for us on the cross. And that's why Paul circles back around in Titus and says this weird thing. He says, what's going to teach us to say no to ungodliness? What in the world is going to teach us to say no to ungodliness? And he says, the grace of God is going to teach us to say no to ungodliness because grace, the grace of God means God says yes to sinners like you and me who've said no to him our whole lives and he says yes he looks at you and I just saw sisters today and I love that Maya Rudolph scene where she says you told me no, a hard no and I always saw myself as a no and I, I began seeing myself as a no and there's a part of me that's like kind of crying in that scene because I'm thinking but God looks at you who are a no and he says yes You are mine. You are worth it. And when you begin to get something of that, you and I begin to be invited into the life of genuine, lasting self-control. I'll close with this. There's a conversation that I love out of Wuthering Heights that I'm totally stealing from Tim Keller that he gives that I love. Um, And it's the scene where, if you know the story, where uh, Jane is Mr. Rochester. She's kind of in love with him. He's in love with her. But he's married to this kind of lady who's, crazy upstairs and so he's trying to make it work with Jane and uh, there's that conversation though where she basically says no to him and here's how it goes I'm just going to read it and we'll close with this she says I was experiencing an ordeal terrible moment full of struggle blackness burning not a human being that ever lived could wish to be loved better than I was loved and him who thus loved me I absolutely worshipped and I must renounce love and idol. One word one drear word comprised my intolerable duty depart she says to Mr. Rochester Jane, you understand what I want of you, just this promise. I will be yours, Mr. Rochester. Mr. Rochester, I will not be yours. Another long silence. Jane, he recommenced, with a gentleness that broke me down with grief, for this still voice was the pant of a lion rising. Jane, do you mean to go one way in the world and to let me go another? I do. Jane, bending towards and embracing me, do you mean it now? I do. I do. And now, softly kissing my forehead and cheek, I do, extricating myself from restraint rapidly and completely. Oh, Jane, this is bitter. This is wicked. It would not be wicked to love me. It would to obey you. A wild look crossed his features. He rose. I shook. I feared, but I resolved. One instant, Jane. Give one glance to my horrible life when you are gone. All happiness will be torn away with you. What shall I do, Jane? Where turn for a companion and for some hope. Do as I do, trust in God and yourself. Believe in heaven. Hope to meet there again. Then you will not yield. No. Then you condemn me to live wretched and to die accursed. His voice rose. I advise you to live sinless and I wish you to die tranquil. Then you snatch love and innocence from me. You fling me back on lust for a passion, vice for an occupation. Mr. Rochester, I no more assign this fate to you than I grasp at it for myself. We were born to strive and endure you as well as I do so. You will forget me before I forget you. It is better to drive a fellow creature to despair than to transgress a mere human law. For you have neither relatives nor acquaintances whom you need fear to offend by living with me. And then she turns inward and talks to herself. And she says, this was true. And while he spoke, my very conscience and reason turned traitors against me and charged me with crime and resisting him. They spoke almost as loud as feeling, and that clamored wildly. "Oh, comply, it said. Think of his misery. Think of his danger. Look at his state when left alone. Remember his headlong nature. Consider the recklessness following on despair. Soothe him. Save him. Love him. Tell him you love him and will be his. Who in this world cares for you? Or who will be injured by what you do? And still indomitable was the reply, I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself. I will keep the law given by God, sanctioned by man. I will hold to the principles received by me when I was sane and not mad as I am now. Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this, when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor, stringent are they and violent they shall be, If at my individual convenience I might break them, what would be their worth? They have a worth, so I have always believed. And if I cannot believe it now, it is because I am insane, quite insane, with my veins running fire and my heart beating faster than I can count its throbs. Preconceived opinions, foregone determinations are all I have at this hour to stand by. And there I plant my foot, and I did. And what I love about that is not just seeing myself and my own struggle for self-control. But what I love about that is the how do you begin to say no? And you begin to, to say no, not just what she, all, all that she said about principle and resolve, but the fact that there's one who is yet more captivated, yet more lovely than a Mr. Rochester, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, you, oh, there's so much more we could say. There's so much said that could be f- way more explained and Lord we trust that you are the one who is the great preacher you are the one who takes your word and you promise to not let it return void to you and would you do that in my heart, would you do that in my friends hearts even now that we might uh, know that you are captivated with us not because we're lovely but because you are love and you have loved us well and promised to love us to the end and Lord would you let us be captivated by that love even now we pray These things were Christ in your name. Amen.